0: We've been going through the book of Matthew. Um, We specifically have been working through this whole idea of apprenticing with Jesus. And uh, we'll we'll get there to this idea of what do we mean by apprentice when we get to specifically Matthew 4. But in the meantime, what we've been trying to do is to do what Matthew was doing, which we believe he was, he was loading up the pack. You can kind of see this by the time it gets to Matthew 28. He was loading up this backpack of, of stuff about who Jesus is, who people are, so that they kind of knew how to respond and how to follow Jesus. So one of the things that I've been trying to do is uh, to take my backpack. Um, this is the one I have. This, this particular pack has been to the top of a lot of mountains, which I love that it has. But if you can think about it this way, is that Matthew is loading their pack to prepare them because they had a mission, and so maybe like if you had something like this, which is a which is an, an air mattress. But let's just say Jesus is putting something like this in their pack, knowing that they're going to need this information as they go out and they start to be disciples who make disciples. And one of the things we're going to look at today, and we'll just kind of let this this represent that is we're going to look at him, what they load about who Jesus is. In fact, Matthew's just going to give us tons of information about who is, who is Jesus. But not only who is Jesus, but Matthew's also going to give us a lot of information about who people are. So we're going to learn some aspects of who people are. We're going to learn some aspects of who Jesus is. But we're also going to learn kind of the also at the end of it, how are we supposed to respond in light of it? Now, the last few weeks, what we've been doing is we've been doing just that very thing. So Christian started this off, and he, one of the things that we needed to learn about Jesus was that we need to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament. In other words, the story of Jesus makes no sense without the Old Testament. You're going to see that even today when we talk about a section out of Isaiah 7. But not only do we need to see Jesus in light of the Old Testament, we need to see the Old Testament in light of the pinnacle of the story. Everything was moving and leading towards the person of Jesus. And so the Old Testament makes zero sense apart from Jesus. And then the way that we learned to respond was kind of around this idea he unpacked for us both two ideas. One is that Jesus was the son of Abraham. What does that mean for us? And he unpacked that. And also Jesus is the son of David that I kind of took and I expended last week. Now, moving into that, when we talked about the son of David, this is what I talked about last week about Jesus, is that Jesus Christ is credibly the king. Like, there's just no doubt about it, whether you go through Matthew or whether you go through Luke, both gospels are trying to tell us the same thing, is that Jesus is the descendant of David. And let me just say this, if Jesus was not the descendant of David, he could have never been the Messiah, but because he truly was the descendant of David, and no one contradicted that, no one in all of history at that particular time contradicted that, he truly was the son of David, which makes him credibly the king. But the other thing we learned, and I hope you appreciated this last week by looking at genealogy, because I'm always like, when, when I was told I was going to preach through genealogy last week, I was like, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? But one of the things that I hope you saw last week with each of those people within that genealogy is that God can and does use anyone. I love that. There is no person too far beyond God's grace that he can't rescue them and use them to accomplish exceedingly abundantly beyond all they can ever think or imagine. And I would say this, if you think you're too great or you're too cool for school, Jesus is also never afraid to break you. You'll you'll even see that with like what he did with the Apostle Paul to make us usable, to be somebody that he can use for the kingdom. Now we also talked about though how to to respond to it. Now now here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to be looking at this whole idea of Jesus as truly the Son of God. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew 22. And let, me, let me show you some that I think will help us kind of get into where we're going, and it'll kind of help us in a way begin to, to comprehend what it is the, that, that Matthew is doing here. Now, this whole idea that we're going to unpack today is the virgin birth. Now, Again, on some levels, it was like last week, how do, I, how do I unpack a genealogy? But how do I unpack a virgin birth, which every year we celebrate Christmas? And in some ways, it just kind of becomes, if we're not careful, blasé to people. But this virgin birth thing, let me say this. If you remove the virgin birth, you do not have Christianity. You cannot remove the virgin birth, and we'll talk about why. But in one implication of it is, is if you remove the virgin birth, then all this is is a story of a young girl that lied to her fiance about getting pregnant by probably some other dude, and they then covered up a lie, and in covering up a lie, they decided to get married. Then they told this Jesus kid that somehow he was the son of God, and then he supernaturally began to do miracles that were kind of who knows where they came from, but they propagated the lie, all to the point where Jesus gets crucified on a cross, and people then follow after him, including probably Mary, and died from it, which means that didn't happen. This is a credible story of a young girl who, in a supernatural way, became now pregnant as a virgin with Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about what that means, But to get there, you'll see like in in Matthew 22, Jesus kind of later in his life begins to toy around with the Pharisees a little bit. Now, if you ever want to kind of understand what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees, the way I always describe it is Jesus snow globed them all the time. Now, if you don't know what a snow globe is, right, it's a little thing, it's filled with water and it's got little stuff in it. And then in order to do this, you, you shake it up and then the snow falls. Anytime Jesus was around the Pharisees, I'll just say this, he was doing this. And they were always like, what in the world? Now, last week we argued that he was the son of David, and we showed that that is, a, that is an absolute truth. But in verse 41, Jesus is going to do the same thing. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, ha. The son of who? We agree. We agree that the person that is the Messiah is going to be, the Christ is going to be, the son of David. Now here's where Jesus snow, he snow globes him. Verse 43, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, How's he the son? How can this Messiah be two things? How can he be both the descendant of David, but yet David calls him Lord? Now the Pharisees, this is what happens next. You'd expect them, I I mean, somebody I thought would have talked, but look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He snow globed him. Now, what's so cool about that is, is, he's starting to lay out this idea that the Messiah will be of the line of David, a human of the line of David. But to be Lord, there was going to be something very different about him. He was going to be one that David, the true king, calls Lord, meaning that not only do we have to figure out what does it mean that it's a descendant of David, that's what we did last week, but we got to figure out what does it mean when David calls him Lord? Now, the way that we're going to get there, and we're going to kind of get to that, is, is actually by looking at verse 18. Now, go back to chapter 1, verse 18, and let's look at this story, because I think this is exactly what it's laying out. On one end, last week, we answered the question that he's the son of David, and this week, we're going to answer the question, how is he David's Lord? Look at Verse 18. Now, when the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, we're going to look at that word, the birth. It's the exact same word as the genealogy back in verse 1. It's this this Greek word, uh, genesis, which we'll, we'll talk about more of in just a little bit. But when his mother Mary had been betrothed. Now, I like that word, betrothed. I wish I would have walked up to my wife and said, shall we be betrothed when we got engaged? Because betrothed sounds so much more refined, if you know what I'm saying. But betrothed is a little bit different than engagement, okay? I just want you to know that. To betrothed meant that there was an arranged marriage somewhere back there. Now we can look back on them and judge them, but at that particular time they had arranged marriages. And if you're someone like me that ain't exactly the best catch in the world, you wished your dad would have arranged for like a marriage later on so that some wife would have still had to have been forced to take you. Instead, what I had to do with my wife is deceive her and make her think I was cool. But they would actually make an agreement together. There was a contract that was formed. And to break that contract was a very, very serious thing. That's why the the man's family would give what was called a dowry. So there were some women that they would give, you know, five cows, two goats, and three chickens. And then there were other women, you'd get two sick chickens and an egg. I mean, it was just like, and everything in between, there was just this way in which they would then form that contract together in and around a dowry. We're gonna learn this later in Matthew 19. It was so serious that you couldn't just break off the engagement. You had to actually divorce. That's how serious this was. So, Here's this guy, Joseph. Here's this one, Mary, and they're betrothed. Now, here's something else you have to understand. They're teenagers. Like on one level, you read this, you're like, dang, you know, Joseph must have been about 50. No, he was probably between the age of like 15 and 18. Now, that's what's crazy to me. Like seriously, would you entrust the son of God to a 15-year-old boy? I just hope sometimes my kids clean their room let alone, hey, why don't you take care of the Son of God, right? But it was different back then. It was very different. You got married at a much younger age. You would walk through that. Probably married, the betrothal process would have started between 12 and 13, which would have made her about 14 years old. But before they came together, which I won't go into because we're in this room, but those of you that are adults know what came, this probably means is that how we babies are made. She was found to be with child from who? The Holy Spirit. Now you're going to watch this. Luke, Matthew, they're all going to be very careful that we understand this child is not Joseph's biological child. Everything they write, they're going to write with care and meticulousness to make sure that we understand this child's origin is not with another human being other than Mary. This child's origin, and here's the word that we're going to start to look at, is divine. There's something else to this that we're going to talk about. It. It's not like, you know, the, the Greek gods or something like that, where a god would come down and do something inappropriate with a woman and you'd get a demigod. That is not what we're talking about here. There is something powerful and special going on in which we are going to have a human, but in another way, this human is going to have an origin with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, a good man, a 16-year-old that's righteous. That's crazy. But he was... Being a just man, meaning he was upright in his culture and unwilling to put her to shame. I love that. Resolved to divorce her quietly. Now there was multiple ways in which you could have done this divorce thing. If you really wanted to bring shame on somebody, you could have taken this to a public tribunal and you could have dragged this woman in front of it. You'll kind of see this like in the story of of the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember that? They drug her in front and they were gonna stone her even though they weren't supposed to because within Roman culture, they had lost the capacity to do that. But you could drag this woman in front and you could absolutely shame her. That was a viable way in which you could do this to protect your family name. This wasn't me, this was her and everyone would know about it. Or you could take this person before two to three witnesses where you could still protect your family name, but you would keep this other one from shame. When we talk about Joseph being just, not only was he he willing Deuteronomy 22 to fulfill the law in this case, to do what God had told him to do, But he was even willing in this to get the heart of the law. Remember later in Matthew 22, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you guys get caught up in every little tiny aspect of the law, but you forgot the weightier matters of the law. You forgot that the whole law points to something of loving God and loving people radically. And that's exactly what this guy Joseph was. What makes him just, what makes him right, is that he passionately loved God and he loved people and he demonstrated it by how he cared for this person. Girl. Now, on one level, you would probably be thinking, come on, dude, follow through, take care of her. Would you? Like I was thinking about this. Like in our culture, there's not so much shame attached to maybe like pregnancies outside of wedlock as they were back in the day, man. It would have cost him his name. It would have cost him potentially even family aspects of it. And I think he was sitting there. We're going to find out probably in a lot of ways even he was afraid. And don't forget, he was 16 years old. And imagine a woman walking up to you and saying, hey, Joseph, good news, bad news. Bad news, I'm pregnant. Good news, it's, it's not yours and it's not other man's. It's from God. Joseph's sitting there going, uh-huh. Huh. (laughs) Huh. You don't say. And I love this, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, uh-oh. Connect him back to his kingly lineage. Joseph, there's something special here. Do not fear like you were doing to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is not from you. It's not from another man. It's from a divine heritage. This one is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from the Roman government. He will save his people from the dastardly people in government in the United States. (laughs) He will save his people from the Babylonians. He will save his people from the Medes and Persians. He will save his people from the Assyrians. No. He will save his people from their sins. Your greatest problem is not your boss. Your greatest problem is not your kids. Your greatest problem is not your parents either. Your greatest problem is not your government. Your greatest problem is not your teacher. Your greatest problem is not the 405. <laughs> your greatest obstacle to being the person that God intends you to be is not those external realities, but exactly what Jesus intends to save them from, their sins. And we're gonna talk about the significance of it, but then to bolster it all, he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel means God with us. He's paving the way for us to be who God intended them to be. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, I love this. You can see this as a right dude. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He's like, okay, Man, and I'll tell you what, man, he needed an angel, but the angel got the job done. He took his wife. He knew her not until he'd given birth, wanted to make sure that she was a virgin, exactly what that text has said. And I love this part. He called his name Jesus. Now on one level we might go, oh, that's cute. He called him Jesus, exactly what he was supposed to do. But let me tell you what this means. If a man who was not his child, took on another woman and gave that child a name. He was saying, I'll adopt him as my very own. I'll take him in. I'll take in the shame. I will take in all the scourge. And in fact, later on in the book of John, we learn exactly that. They treated her as if somehow she was a, 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 an illegitimate woman and he, Jesus, was an illegitimate son. Joseph took that in and that was okay because he saw, according to this angel, there is something big going on here. This kid is special. Now, here's what I want you to see today, okay? There's going to be three things that we're going to look at that I want you to, we're going to try to really hammer home off this text. One is, is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That's the first thing we're going to look at. So let's say it back with me. Jesus Christ is the? Son of God. Okay, good. I'm proud of you for saying that. Way to go. You can read. Now, what do we learn about People. God's people believe his word. All right, we're going to say it together. God's people. Believe his word. Okay, we're going to get that into our head. And what do we learn about ourselves and about people in general is that responding by faith will have cost. Okay, so responding by faith. Okay, you're doing good. Let's look first at this whole idea of Jesus Christ as the son of God. Here we go. Now, at the very beginning, when we say he's the son of God, you need to see two things. In verse one, if you look down in your Bibles, and you can even underline this if you want to, is that word, the genealogy, and then if you look down in verse 18, the birth, those come from the same exact root word. Genesis. that's the word that it comes from. Now, if you remember right, we talked about this last time, is that God is doing something new. He's doing something different. In this case, he says on one end, he's doing something new, and this person is going to come from a unique lineage, which has to do with the line of David. And on the other end, he says, but hey, don't miss this out. He is not just the son of David. He says he's doing something new, and it's going to be connected now to not having an earthly father, but instead, the Holy Spirit now does a work within him. These are two parallel realities, because he wants us to know that there are two aspects of who this Jesus is. Is that we have to grapple with. The other thing is, when you look down there, is that this was not going to be a normal birth, this was going to be a miracle. In fact, the same word that's used within the, in the Old Testament of God now overshadowing the temple or even the way the Holy Spirit now breathed life is that there was a way in which now this wasn't gonna be a God and a, and a female cohabitating together and having a demigod. This was gonna be a miraculous work of God in which he was going to breathe life into Mary's womb in such a way that Jesus now would become a true living human being even though there was no no biological father. It was going to be a miracle. Now listen to me. You cannot remove this miracle from the gospel story. If you remove this miracle from the gospel story, you gut the gospel. It's got to be there. Not only that, but when you look down in verse 20, we realize again this this truth that's put out there is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. And in Luke 1 he even, he writes it out this way. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High. Here's this word, overshadow. we are overshadow you like he did the temple and fill you and breathe life into you. This is going to be a miraculous act and this one that now is going to be born within you isn't from some awkward relationship between a God and a human. He will be holy. And here's the term. He will be the what? Son of God. The son of David, the son of Abraham, but also what? Son of God. Now there's something powerful going on inside of this text that's important. He's starting the inklings of what the church later wrestles with, which is that Jesus is not just a normal person. He is fully human. You've got to understand that. Jesus Christ, and we'll talk about the implications in a second. Jesus Christ is fully human. There's not a facet of who he is that is not human. But in the same way that he is fully human, he is also fully God. And the gospel does not make sense. The story of scripture does not make sense if Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully human. That's what he's starting to do. Now, he's he's not saying that exactly, but he's starting to kind of push that boat off for us to understand that this Jesus is someone who is definitely unique. He's got a characteristic about him that makes him, when you can see down there in Luke one thirty-five, he is the son of God. Not only that, but he then quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 7 to make sure that we understand this was God's plan all along. He says, "All this took place. Look at that to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, uh, Isaiah seven fourteen: the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning that Jesus doesn't just save us from our sins; he brings God to who? Us. He brings us to God." If you want to know what Jesus was doing and why he came to earth, he was clearing away the greatest obstacle to our relationship with the God of the universe through dealing with sin, but not just so that we can now coexist or so that we can avoid hell or so that we can go to some, you know, ethereal place at the end of it. He created it, Revelation we find out, so that we might be with God. He was paving the way. And not only that, he is John 1, the word of God with us. Oh, there is something powerful, Matthew says, that's going on right here. Now in that passage in Isaiah 7, some people will say sometimes, well, it's not really the virgin, it's just a young woman will conceive. And really, it's about this guy named King Ahaz, and it's going to be a child. It's going to be a sign from God. And it's about this whole thing of getting out from underneath the kings of Israel and Aram, because Israel used to be kind of bad at that particular time. And that somehow at the end of it, that, that, that Ahaz is going to wait, and there's going to be a kid that's going to come, and it's going to be Isaiah's kid. And, and they go back and forth through all these different realities, missing the point what exactly it is that Matthew's doing. Matthew's quoting Isaiah 7 with the hopes that they keep reading. See, after Isaiah and Isaiah 8, it comes out is that it brings up this idea of Emmanuel again, God with us. And then we read and we get further into Isaiah 9 and we read about a child again. Oh, for to us a child is, is, is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, this kid ain't normal. Keep reading. Keep reading. So on one end, it may not, that, there may have been a, a different person that Isaiah had in mind. But, Isaiah, but Matthew is saying, yeah, but if you keep reading and you pull Isaiah back and you see all these stories about a kid, you'll start to understand that couldn't just be any normal old kid. This was going to be somebody special that was coming along at a, at a later time. But not only that, chapter 11, if we keep reading... Thus shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, meaning this one now from from David, this branch from his roots shall bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit and the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked is that a normal kid now don't get me wrong i woke up this morning with one of my kids and his breath almost knocked me over but this is different i won't tell you which one this is different righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins in other words Matthew's saying if you keep reading you start to understand This kid's special. In fact, when you look at the entire book of Isaiah and you keep reading, it keeps filling in in a greater way who this Jesus is tells us who this one is that's coming that will set things straight. A a suffering servant, you got a conquering king all in one. And the only answer to that beautiful picture in Isaiah of all those people pieced together is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what Matthew is trying to say. He is the fulfillment of everything that you've longed for. He is the one that will cure you now of your greatest dilemma, sin against the holy God. He is the one that is going to one day usher in peace as humanity has always longed for this is it Jesus Christ truly is Luke one thirty five. he's the son of God who will save his people from their sins he is the one who is God with us this is King Jesus it had to be this way Matthew's just stringing it all together he's hoping people are going to read this he's like oh you just keep reading and I would even say this for those of you that have doubts, keep reading. Don't just stay in your doubt. It's kind of popular now at this time to just kind of stay in your doubt. You guys know, have doubts. So I'm just going to hang out with my doubts. And then I'll find other people and put them around me that have doubts. No. Get into this amazing book called Scripture and you will find that those doubts will be answered by this incredible book called God's Word called the Bible. You will find the answers, and the answer that you will come to is one answer. Jesus Christ is exactly who this book says He is King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior, God with us, the one that we have longed for who will set all things straight. That's what you come to. I don't care what it is or how you slice it or dice it. King Jesus is the answer to it. Now, let me throw a few implications at you just so you can kind of see how important this is. Here's one of your first implications. If Jesus Christ truly is the son of God, that means he can save their people from their sin. Let me just say this to any of you out there. If you're somebody that has never experienced King Jesus before, and you are living with the weight, the shame, the guilt of knowing that you need desperately to have a work of God in your life, Jesus Christ has come, and Jesus Christ forgives sin. He can deal with anything. He can deal with murder. He can deal with rape and incest. He can deal with even lying and and all those other things that we come up with that we know that we've wronged and hurt people. King Jesus saves people from their sins. And this is why he couldn't just be a king. He couldn't just be a revolutionary. He couldn't just be, thank goodness, a politician. Jesus Christ couldn't be just those things because he couldn't save people from their sins. Joe Biden can't save people from their sins. I know some of you think Donald Trump can save people from their sins, but he can't. Barack Obama can't save people from their sins. George Bush couldn't save people from their sins. Even George Washington couldn't save people from their sins. The only one that saves from sin is the son of David, but also the son of God. See, he had to be a man. He had to. He had to be a representative of us in order for him now to pay the penalty for the sin, the the, the way in which we've rebelled against God. He had to be human. He had to be our representative. But no human being can ever sustain the wrath that was owed us as humans. Therefore, he had to also be God. God. And the grand beauty of this person, Jesus, is because he was fully man and fully God and he lived this life in front of us that demonstrated who he was. He did what the first Adam couldn't. He saves from sin, all sin. But he only saves from sin those that come and bend their knee by faith to him. And so if you've never bent your knee by faith to King Jesus, today's the day. Jesus forgives Sin. He's the only one that could break that cycle. Here's the other thing about Jesus Christ being the Son of God: is that He is God with us. Christian talked about this idea in Second Samuel of a forever King and a forever kingdom, in which we would finally be with God. Let me just say this: you know this. All of us are longing for that kind of kingdom. I went down to the valley yesterday. I don't know who lives there. That's not the kingdom. Oh my goodness. Then I came back to see me, you know, it's on the edge of the, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) See me ain't so great either. But you know, deep within us, we're longing for something greater. We're longing for things to be made right. We're longing for things to, to come into place. We always have hopes of maybe the next leader or we think, you know, the the certain leader will never be the one that will ever bring the fulfillment that we want. It's because there is only one who can ever do it and that is King Jesus. Don't put your hopes in presidents and governors and mayors and I don't know, work your way down through those. Put your hope in King Jesus Because there is coming a day in which that king will not come back as a suffering servant. He is coming back for who he is. King of kings and Lord of lords and he will establish a kingdom of righteousness and goodness and finally we will have what our hearts have longed for because Jesus will reign rightly over not only heaven but earth as he was intended. We are longing for the forever king who is fully human and fully God. Now, here's the other kicker about it. As the son of God, Jesus took on this human nature, not just for 33 years, but he took on that human nature forever. He will always be fully God, fully man. And the beauty of it right now is, is that for those of us who are in Christ, we know that the king sits enthroned at the right hand of the father. We know that every single day and every single moment, those of us that are his, even though we fail miserably on a regular basis, and if you don't think you fail, well, you and I really got to talk. We fail regularly, but yet the Bible says he intercedes for us continually. He is the one at the right hand of the father that even prays for us all the time. He is the fully God, fully man one who represents us fully human in front of the Father. And the only reason he can be in front of the Father is because he is fully God, part of and a person in and through that oneness of the unity of the, of the Trinity. And he intercedes for us. See, there's a reason why when we gather in here on a regular basis, you don't worship Me, thank God. You don't worship other things. We worship Jesus. Why? Because he's the king, fully God, fully man, and he deserves our worship and our praise. That's why you can't remove this from the gospel. If you remove this, we are still in our sins If you remove this, we no longer can be with God, but because Jesus, fully God, fully man, came and fulfilled the role that scripture promised he would fulfill, we now, as a group of people, live in the privileged position of knowing that our sins are forgiven, our destiny is to be one with God, and as far as knowing and loving him and being with him forever, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, God with us, as a reminder that our promised inheritance is coming one day. Day. Oh church worship King Jesus and all God's people said Amen. All right good Not bad not bad That's the first one Is Jesus Christ is the son of God So what's the first point Jesus Christ is Okay good Have I made my point Again okay Yes Todd keep going please Here's the second one God's people believe His word. Now, on one level, when you look down at 18 through 19, you start to see that Joseph was one, and even if you took you to Luke 1, you would see that Mary is one as well. So we're talking a man and a woman. Both of them were people that believed God's word. We talked about it a little bit before. Joseph got the law, he got the heart of the law, not just the, 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 the nuances of the law, he got the heart of the law. He was this one that, that, that truly did love God. He kept his law. That's what you can see down here in Deuteronomy 22. The reason that he's doing this is he, is he is a man living out the law. He's a man protecting his family name. But also now you can just see this, his heart coming out towards Mary, where now the heart of the law also comes out, where he protected Mary's honor as well. See, God's people... We know the book and we live the book. We embody the book and the heart of this book begins to now flow out of us in that kind of a way. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 24, that even in that moment when he woke up and he he knew that that God had had told him to take her as his wife, he knew that that he was supposed to not be around her until or not, not to have any kind of relations with her until after he was born the reason he was supposed to call his name Jesus is because he believed his word. Now, all throughout the book of Matthew, you're going to see this. The people that are truly God's people, man, they believe the word. They believe what God says. And I would even say this, even when it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense right now in our culture to say, you know what, actually God has defined who humans are and so therefore we're gonna allow God to define humans. We're gonna allow God to define gender. We're gonna allow God to to define out sexuality. We're gonna allow God to define out goodness and and human flourishing. We're gonna allow God to do it while the world constantly looks at potentially us as followers of Jesus and says, y'all are crazy. No, we're not. It is not foolish in the least to believe the word of God. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul later says there's human wisdom and human strength, but God is going to absolutely confound those, tear them apart, because his wisdom is so much greater than any wisdom that this world has to offer. His strength is so much greater than any strength that this world has to offer. You can bank your belief in the God of the universe. Trust him. Trust him. And sometimes we might say, well, you know, I'll trust him once I get a little bit older. Joseph was probably 16 years old. And let me just talk to you for a second, those of you that are high schoolers and middle schoolers in here. Do not dare believe this lie that because somehow you're a teenager, you can't do phenomenal things in following Jesus. Some of the greatest things done within Scripture... We're not done by old people, but actually by teenagers. David, teenager. Josiah, eight-year-old. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Oh my gosh. Those of you that are in here, don't wait to later follow Jesus. Follow Jesus now. Trust him now. And here's the last thing. Not only is he son of God, not only do we believe his word, but responding by faith will have cost. By Joseph choosing to take on Mary, let me just say this, both he and Mary were gonna have a rough life. Constantly sitting in a position of shame, constantly now in this this place in which people were gonna look down upon them, castigate them, But yet they just believed God. If you follow it through all the way through the book of Matthew, that's just the way it happens. In fact, Jesus eventually looks at him and says, hey, here's the deal. If they hated you or me, they're going to hate who? You. Not because there's anything like unlovable about who we are. I mean, we're lovable people but because we love the one that confronts them about the reality of their need for a savior, their need to come to him, to be with God. It will cost. And I would even say this, for some people, it wasn't worth the cost. In Matthew 19, this rich young ruler walks up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, for most of us, if we got that question, we'd be like, okay, quickly say this prayer. And we'd walk into the prayer. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, well, have you kept this law and this law and this law and this law? And what did the young man say? I've kept them all since I was a young man. I might even be betrothed. <laughs> and so Jesus looked back at him and in the heart of the law, he said, then sell everything you have. And follow me. And it says in there that he walked away sad. Now imagine the apostles walking up to him afterwards, right? They walked up and they're like, oh, Jesus. Well, if that's the case, who can be saved? That's overwhelming. And Jesus in Matthew 19, 26, this is amazing statement. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Oh, believe. Believe. But not only believe, but understand there will be cost. But this is the last thing I'll say to you. There may be a cost, but there is a treasure in the field and a pearl of great price. You will not regret following King Jesus. I promise you a thousand years from now, let's go ahead and create a thousand year plan. Skip these five year plans. I promise you a thousand years from now, those of you that by faith, because we're not perfect, all of us are in desperate need of the work of God. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God doing his work in and through us as we come to him by faith. You will not regret following King Jesus. You will not regret it. And so if you're somewhere here today who has never bent your knee to King Jesus, let me just tell you this. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is fully God, fully man. He can pay for the sin in which you've committed, not only against him, but against others. He can now work you through, transform you, and make you into the person that God intends you to be. And I promise you, you bend your knee to him today, a thousand years from now, you will never regret it. I make that guarantee. And so I would love to talk to you today if you don't know King Jesus. For the rest of us, I'd like you all to stand up. Okay, shake it out. I'm gonna repeat them back. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God's people he is the Lord. responding by faith but we won't regret it. And all God's people said, amen.